0: From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, the producer of this podcast and your host for this episode. As we near the end of the year, we are bringing you an episode of Reflection. A lot has happened in the world, in our country, and in our work at the ACLU. We all felt the high stakes of last week's oral arguments at the Supreme Court on abortion. And while that has left us with concern, there is still so much to celebrate this year from our work across the organization. We've made meaningful strides fighting for better COVID policy, criminal legal reform, immigration reform, free speech, disability rights, and voting rights. So today we are regrouping with the ACLU's legal director, David Cole, to talk through where we can find hope this year and also where we can continue to press forward next year. So with all of that, let's jump right in. David, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure.
0: So I want to start with perhaps the biggest elephant in the room. I mentioned this in the introduction, the persistent threat to reproductive freedom. Last week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the Mississippi abortion case that could decide the future of Roe v. Wade. We won't hear anything until June, but I'm wondering what you made of those arguments.
1: So this is a real challenge. You want me to be hopeful and optimistic, and yet you, we have to start by talking about We're the We're getting uh, it uh, out of the, the way.
0: The-, <laughs> <laughs> so the hope can come, but I feel like we have to talk about this.
1: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. So, the arguments were um, were I think surprising to many in in that uh, the court seemed, or at least five members of the court, seemed quite ready to overturn Roe v.ersus Wade in whole to basically say there is no right to abortion. Period. It is left to the states, which would mean that in many states there would not be a right to abortion, in other states there would be a right to abortion, but it would be decided by politicians in the State House, not by women and their doctors. Very disturbing. Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, was the only one who sort of explicitly indicated a desire for some kind of a more more modest uh, decision. Um, uh, And he seemed to be suggesting that maybe you could, the court could say that the 15-week ban that was at issue in Mississippi uh, is not an undue burden which is the standard the court has used uh, on the right, because it gives women 15 weeks to decide to have an abortion. That's three and a half months. In his view, you know, that might not be an undue burden. In our view, that's inconsistent with Roe and Casey, because they said that before viability, which is about 24 weeks, uh, you can't ban at all. Um, But we're, were Roberts to Attract one of the five, at least one of the five uh, conservative justices to that position. That would be the result. And the result would be a contraction of Roe from uh, protection to viability to something like 15 weeks, uh, who knows precisely, which would still be a a major loss, but but it would retain the right. At least um, for the first 15 weeks, which is not insignificant, given that over 90% of women get abortions in the f- in roughly the first trimester, the first 15 weeks. So it didn't appear like any of the other five were, were taking the bait in terms of that more modest result. I will say, you know, that 30 years ago, when the court uh, first addressed whether to overturn Roe versus Wade in a case called Casey versus Planned Parenthood of Pennsylvania. They had enough votes to to overturn Roe versus Wade. And then in the course of kind of writing the opinions, a couple of justices got cold feet and they ended up uh, writing a decision that upheld Roe versus Wade, revised it and narrowed it in certain ways, but upheld it. So it is possible that one of those justices who sounded like they were ready to overturn Roe, Kavanaugh or Barrett or Gorsuch, might you know with time reflecting on how enormous it would be to take away a constitutional right from half of the country, one that has been recognized for 50 years, they might, you know, blink and say, okay, we'll go with Chief Justice Roberts. You know, we'll see, but either way, you know, I, I, there's no way that we're going to get a, an affirmation of Roe, which is what the three more liberal justices were arguing for. Um, so that's that's very disturbing it will mean an incredible amount of work going forward to protect and defend the right because you'll have to defend it in each state at the state legislature in the state courthouses will be but we'll be fighting and i will say this the fact that one out of four american women have had an abortion and that the overwhelming majority of Americans believe that women should have a right to abortion. They disagree always about where when it should end, but they, but they should. Those are very, very powerful facts on the ground. And so those can be used to ensure protection of the right, even if the Supreme Court is not going to protect the right. But it will require massive amounts of work, uh, massive amounts of resources, real mobilization. To get us back to, you know, something close to Roe. And and I don't know if we'll ever get back something close to Roe. So it's a really disturbing prospect. And particularly, you know, when President Trump basically used a litmus test for his uh, appointments to the court, said, I'm going to appoint justices who will overturn Roe versus Wade. If in the, you know the second year that that court has the full complement of Trump justices with Kavanaugh, Gorsuch and Barrett, they overturn Roe versus Wade, that really politicizes the process, and I think really would undermine the legitimacy of the court in in serious ways. There's no question that all six of the Republican appointed justices would not have decided Roe in the first instance, that they disagree with the result. So how do you weigh that with your obligation as a judge to follow precedent and with your concern about the court looking extremely political? That I think will have to be weighing on their conscience uh, over the next six months before the decision comes out, and, and we'll see.
0: We will see. And I certainly hope that it is weighing on their consciences yeah, heavily. Yeah. So I want to pivot to some hope, um, some victories, discussing some things we have to celebrate from this year. I think many people now feel pretty low. COVID rages on towards its two year mark. And as we discussed, just now, we have the looming threat of abortion access being pulled from our hands. But I know, and you know, that that's not the full picture, even if it feels like it is. So I want to start off with just a high level, and then we'll dig into some specifics. But what is working for us now?
1: I mean, first of all, I'd say, you know, people in marginalized communities and the most vulnerable have been significantly aided by the new administration with, uh, you know, the COVID relief bills, the extension of unemployment, the extension of the eviction ban, the um, the infrastructure bill. And then if the, you know, the, the further bill uh, you know, gets gets enacted, which I assume it will in some capacity, that's a tremendous amount of support that has gone out to the people who are most in need in this country and will, you know, disproportionately aid uh, people of color people living in urban poor or rural poor. One of the ACLU's principal priorities at this moment is a systemic equality, which is about trying to push for measures that will bring some measure of equality to people of color and to poor people in this country. And and a lot of that is through economic justice measures. And a lot of what the Biden administration has succeeded in doing has been economic justice, much of which we have supported, so you know I would say that's a big plus in, for for people, many people in their everyday lives and it's easy to forget about it and it's easy to focus on the fact that the Democrats can't get their act together and the ACLU continues to do its work both in the state houses and Congress, but also in the courts and we've been you know successful in the courts too often people say we have to give up on the courts, Trump has changed the federal judiciary, you have to give up on the courts. I don't think so. I mean, I, I think, yes, he appointed a lot of ju- judges. He, at the end of his term, 25 percent of the federal judiciary were appointed by Trump. That's a kind of a scary number to those who, you know, who don't like what Trump stands for and don't like what the judges he appointed stand for. Uh, but I think it's worth keeping in mind that almost 40 percent of the federal judiciary was appointed by Obama. So, you know, that's before Biden started appointing judges, many of whom come from diverse backgrounds, come from public interest and criminal defense backgrounds and the like. Um, So, you know, you can't give up on the federal courts. And we've continued to prevail in the federal courts. I just, uh, you know, sent around a memo to my uh, team congratulating them on on 66 victories uh, over the the last uh, six months or so. Um, Everything ranging from free speech to religion, to disability rights, to um, criminal justice, racial justice, women's rights, abortion rights, voting rights. I mean, in every area that we work, we have seen significant victories. Some of those victories, you know, reaching Uh, millions of people. But I think we can't lose sight of the fact that it is possible to use the courts to protect those who the political process doesn't protect.
0: And it's not just federal courts that we're we're working with. We're also working within state courts and see that as a a method of, of change for us and a path forward as well, right?
1: Absolutely. I mean, so one of the things is if the federal courts are less hospitable, one place you can look is to the state courts. Because State courts and state constitutions have to protect at least as much as the federal constitution protects in terms of rights, but they can protect more than what the federal constitution requires. Federal constitution sets a floor, but not a ceiling. So, for example, you know, in Orange County, California, we uh, went went in after COVID hit and sued to challenge the conditions in the um, county jails there. Thousands of people held in really overcrowded conditions, many of them vulnerable to COVID and without, you know, any of the kind of requirements that the CDC has required. And we filed in federal court and that case didn't go very far, very fast. We filed a similar case in state court Uh, And we got an order from the state court judge based on state law requiring the county jail to reduce its population by half, by 50 percent, over a thousand people ordered, released as a result of of something we got in, in, in state court. So, you know, and then a similar example in North Carolina, years ago, the Supreme Court ruled that the fact that the death penalty is administered in a way that has racially disparate effects and whether you live or die, is not a problem under the federal equal protection clause, um, a case called McCleskey versus Kemp. But that doesn't stop states from saying it is a problem under our state law. And North Carolina did that. They passed something called the Racial Justice Act. And we have been litigating under that Racial Justice Act to Demonstrate that, in fact, the North Carolina death penalty has been administered in a raci- in a way that has racially disproportionate effects, and I think it's quite likely that we get many of the people on death row off of death row as a result of that. We already have with respect to some. And again, you couldn't do that in federal court under the federal constitution, but you can do it in state court. So, and you know, North Carolina is not a particularly liberal state, but um, but we were what we've been able to to get uh, su- substantial relief.
0: Absolutely. I want to turn to uh, a little bit more about COVID policy that we've dug into. Some states across the country, Iowa and South Carolina are two examples, have banned mask mandates or attempted to ban mask mandates. We filed lawsuits in these states representing parents of disabled and immunocompromised kids. Can you tell us about what has happened since September?
1: Yeah, sure. So so um, in both states, we've... Um, Gone in on behalf of uh, essentially disabled kids through their parents, uh, and to some and, and in some instances, uh, teachers who are who are vulnerable, uh, to argue that barring schools from adopting a mask mandate, uh, and by mask mandate they define it very broadly, so the school could not even require, for example, the school nurse to wear a mask, which is you know kind of crazy. But that kind of a, of a prohibition across the board prohibition has a disparate effect on people with disabilities, people who are vulnerable especially vulnerable to COVID and who need the protections of masks and um, and we've been successful in both South Carolina and Iowa the federal courts have struck down the no mask mandate and uh, they're both on appeal but you know I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that the courts of appeal will, will uphold those and allow schools to decide, you know, based on the particularities of their circumstances, whether a mask uh, mandate is necessary or not. It may differ from school to school. There may, you know, but um, the Rehabilitation Act and the the, um, Americans with Disabilities Act prohibit the adoption of broad based policies that harm people with disabilities. That's exactly what the no mask mandate is.
0: Definitely agree. Uh, we actually had a, a parent from South Carolina who we were working with on the podcast back in September and heard um, her son's story. So I think, you know, listeners might remember that episode and it's really exciting to hear that we've been successful there thus far. I wanted to also talk about voting rights Both the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act legislative efforts have been blocked by Republicans um, since Biden took office. This standstill, I think, can feel really discouraging for the future of voting rights. But we've also had success blocking attacks in various states. And can you tell me about some of those?
1: Sure. Um, Our Voting Rights Project is just um, a remarkable group of uh, attorneys and staff, and they work with our affiliates, and they you know, go around the country uh, trying to make sure that people have the right to vote. You would think that you wouldn't have to fight so hard for the right to vote, but in this day and age, you absolutely do. So we've blocked voter purges, which is where um, states come in and basically take people who have registered to vote off of the rolls for various reasons. We've blocked those in a couple of states. We have Succeeded in two other states in requiring the states to make sure that there's access to voter registration at public assistance offices in Arizona and Kansas. We succeeded in requiring that that access be made available. Uh, we've um, successfully uh, defended a, a kind of a no prison gerrymandering law in in Virginia, which um, ended in that state the practice of counting people. For purposes of districting, counting people in their where they're imprisoned rather than where they're from, uh, which has the effect of sort of shifting political power from urban areas where pe where the, the individuals actually live to rural areas where they are you know involuntarily detained and then we are um, we've been very active in challenging redistricting in response to the census. And those cases have not yet come to fruition, but we've filed suit in several states already and, and, and will ultimately file suit in, I think, uh, almost 10 states, challenging both state and, in some instances, federal maps, um, uh, where the legislature sort of uses the tempor- its temporary majority to try to lock it in by drawing maps in such a way that um, a temporary majority will will become a permanent majority. It is a huge area of concern, I think, to us and I think should be to all Americans that uh, you've got one party, unfortunately, that has decided that the, the way to victory is by making it harder for people to vote. They're obviously afraid of what people will vote for if they're allowed to vote. And so instead of changing their policies so that people would vote for them, they're seeking to block people's ability to vote. We're in there saying everybody should have the right to vote. In a democracy, that's the principle number one.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's very much saying the, the quiet thing loud. Um, it seems yeah uh, it yeah. seems that's what's happening there. I do want to touch on immigration as well. Uh, I think it can be easy to you know see the recent extension of title 42 as painting the picture of how immigration, is going in the, in the Biden era and, and not in a way that we'd like to see it. But we have had some wins on immigration this year, namely ending the border wall construction, also blocking a rule that summarily excludes families at the southern border. Can you talk a little bit about what we're seeing there?
1: Yeah, so immigration is obviously a a challenge uh, and, and always has been a challenge. We, with The Immigrants Rights Project, which is a very strong part of the ACLU's um, legal department, was extraordinarily busy under President Trump because President Trump made targeting immigrants and xenophobia the kind of the, the linchpin of his administration. And so we were extraordinarily busy. But we were busy under President Obama as well, and we are we continue to be busy under under President Biden. And so in the immigration context, unlike say voting um, or criminal justice or the death penalty, you you can't rely on state courts, state constitutional provisions. Immigration is a federal law issue. The only place to go is either Congress and good luck going to Congress these days. Or the courts, and so we've continued uh, to go to court, and you know we, we we were quite successful under the Trump administration in blocking many of the worst things—not the Muslim ban, ultimately, but many of the worst um, measures that Trump put in place—and we're continuing. To, some of those, the Biden administration sought to end, like the return to Mexico policy. We had successfully challenged the return to Mexico policy in the lower courts. It was up before the Supreme Court on an appeal by the Trump administration. But when Biden came in, he ended that policy and dismissed that case. He was then challenged by by, uh, various right-wing groups in saying that the way that he ended the return to Mexico policy was illegal. And he has to you know, either redo it or put it back into place. And so we're continuing to fight to ensure that uh, this kind of return to Mexico policy, where you take people at the southern border who are seeking asylum, who demonstrate that they have a credible fear, because this is the people it applies to, and therefore are entitled to an asylum hearing, We were sending them back to some of the most dangerous parts of Mexico, parts of Mexico that our State Department warns Americans not to travel to because they are as dangerous or more dangerous than war zones. That was what the return to Mexico policy was. We challenged it in court. Biden uh, has been trying to get rid of it, but um, the courts have been uh, pushing him to do it differently. So we're still fighting on that. Title 42 is a Another uh, barrier put in by Trump, but still there under uh, under Biden. This is one that says because of the public health crisis that COVID presents, we should summarily turn back people who arrive at the southern border. Period. And we've been successful in uh, in federal court in saying that should not apply to families with children who come in at the border and have a um, credible. Claim to asylum; Uh, those people should not be turned back simply because of COVID. You can do all kinds of measures to make sure that they are they are COVID free, uh, that they are quarantined uh, if there's any any risk uh, whatsoever. But you can't just turn them back summarily. Um, And 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 so we're we're continuing uh, to fight that. And then we're on other areas. We are defending the Biden administration. So um, the the Biden administration adopted what. What are called ICE enforcement priorities. There are, you know, uh, upwards of 10 million people here who are out of status in one fashion or another. We should prioritize the ones who pose more of a danger and more of a threat, and deprioritize the ones who pose less of a threat. They give them a a, a sense of security that they're not going to be targeted for deportation, you know, uh, tomorrow or next week or or this year. Uh, again, right-wing groups and states have challenged those priorities. We have defended the Biden administration in the courts, and thus far, the courts have, uh, have upheld those enforcement priorities. So we are, you know, in some areas, we're defending the Biden administration. In other areas, we are continuing to challenge the Biden administration. And, and in still others, we're trying to resolve disputes that arose under Trump, but have continued under under Biden. But in all of those you need federal courts. You ultimately, you know, there's no alternative but to go to federal courts to protect um, to protect immigrants.
0: So, altogether, in this email, note, memo, per se, that you sent out to the ECLU staff, you counted a total of 66 wins. We've covered some of them today, but are there others that, you know, might stand out to you that we haven't discussed that haven't been, you know, that are perhaps narrow but also really important.
1: Yeah, so 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 many. I mean, I think they're all important. You know, all my children are special. All <laughs> victories are important.
0: I didn't mean uh, to insinuate no. that you needed to choose. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but some of the some of them. I mean, some. The uh you know, I'll I'll start with the uh, one of one that's near and dear to my heart because um I got to, got had the privilege of arguing it in the Supreme Court, but that was a victory in the in the uh student online speech case. the case. Fuck cheer uh, case. Which, uh, the the Fakshir <laughs> case. And you know, that decision basically ensures that millions of public school students across this country uh, have free speech on the Internet when they're away from school um, and can't be punished by the school as if they were in school, which is what the what the school was arguing for in that case. I, so that's a that's a favorite. I think also really important victory we had in a challenge to a um, kind of scary Baltimore persistent aerial surveillance program where they basically had a plane flying over the city with this extraordinarily powerful camera taking um real-time images of the entire city so that they could then track any individual in any part of the city at any time by looking at those records it's a and, and the fourth circuit on bonk so the whole court sitting together concluded that that violates people's reasonable expectation of privacy. Really important because, you know, it's another example of technology enabling the state to monitor us in ways that were just not even possible when the Fourth Amendment was adopted. And then we had a big victory in Baltimore protecting prisoners' rights, protecting, uh, we had a win in the Tenth Circuit, uh, which is a very conservative circuit, but... um, we won in a case defending the right of a parolee not to be required to attend Christian services as a as a condition of his parole. So you know there have been a lot, of, and that's just you know that we've just hit the tip of the iceberg. But um, you know again, from from abortion to voting to immigration to free speech, free religion, racial justice, we've had a lot of wins, and and uh, you know it just makes me very proud of. Of our staff. And it makes me hopeful that we can continue to um, do important work that that ensures that people uh, have uh, the constitutional rights and and civil liberties and civil rights that are set forth on paper in the Constitution and in state constitutions, but only meaningful if people fight for them, fight for them in the streets, fight for them in the state houses, and fight for them in the courts. And, And we're uh, we're there working with them and I, you know, and, and, and we rely on our members supporting us and fighting alongside us. But uh, when we do fight together, uh, we can win.
0: Awesome. Well, I definitely would say that we're still very busy, even if we have a new administration. There's a lot that's going on right now. But we've been through tougher times at the ACLU. I'm wondering if we can just end with, you know, you've been here for how many years now? How many years have you been at the ACLU?
1: Coming up on my five-year uh, anniversary. Five years. So I started just shortly shortly before tr- uh, President Trump took office. Um, so you've so, seen yeah. a
0: lot. Uh, yeah. What, what keeps you hopeful? What keeps you doing this work?
1: Well, I mean, what keeps me hopeful is the fact that we can win. We have won. Uh, we continue to win. And that, you know, even when we don't win, it is absolutely important to fight. By fighting, you sort of call on the powerful to justify their acts, and you make it a little less easy for the powerful to run roughshod over the rights of the vulnerable. And, you know, that's what the ACLU was created for in 1920, to fight for the rights of the vulnerable at that time, particularly um, uh, to fight for workers. Now we fight for everybody's rights. But I think there's there's value in that fight, both in terms of without the fight, you can't win. But also, if you don't fight, the losses will be much more deep. And so, look, democracy is a, is a work in progress. Uh, the Constitution is a work in progress. The only way that we ensure that its uh, guarantees are meaningful for us is by working together by people being active, associating with groups like the ACLU or the NAACP Legal Defense Fund or Lambda Legal Defense Fund or or, or what have you uh, to fight for those rights. But if people do come together and fight for those rights, uh, um, there's, you know, there's no limit to what we can do. And so I, I just, um, I, I gain hope every day from the work of the folks that we work with and from the support of the members who, um, who are so uh, eager to stand with us.
0: Thank you so much, David, for joining us. That was really lovely to hear about all that is working and all that we have to celebrate in 2021.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to support our fight in the year to come, you can donate by visiting aclu.org liberty. That's aclu.org liberty. We really appreciate your support. Until next week, stay strong, everyone.